Well, this morning I'm going to continue a message that I began last week on a Christ-oriented life. Corey Tinboom is a name you may know, but younger uh, generations may not know that name. She was a Dutch Christian who with her family helped many Jews escape the Nazis during World War II. Her family was betrayed and her entire family was arrested and taken off to a political concentration camp. Uh, her father died, uh, I think, before even reaching the camp, 10 days after uh, his arrest. Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to uh, this concentration camp in the Netherlands and then finally to Ravensbrück concentration camp where Betsy died. Following World War II, Corey became famous for her book that she wrote about this experience called The Hiding Place. If you haven't read it, I recommend that you do read it. And this gave her an opportunity to proclaim Christ to thousands of people all over the world that, as she relayed her story. What was so amazing about it is that she could forgive. Uh, one evening in 1947, so keep in mind that's not long after the war, after she had spoken about the forgiveness of Christ to a church in Munich, uh, she had a stunning encounter. And here I just want to quote from her uh, account of that. The solemn face stared back at me, not quite daring to, to believe. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and next, a blue uniform and a cap with a skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pale of dress, pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. That place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards, and now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned of Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, he, he went on, I've become a Christian, and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? Granting forgiveness is not an easy task. If you have been wounded deeply, you know how hard it is to forgive an offense when it is so deep. And in some ways, Corey's dilemma was, was like a reenactment of what Paul was asking Philemon to do with Onesimus, to forgive him and welcome him as a brother, as a beloved brother. And the letter and person of Philemon helps us to understand not only forgiveness, but what it means for followers of Jesus Christ, even ones deeply hurt by others like Corey was, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
How would Philemon ever forgive? How would Corey ever forgive? Right? The reason they could is because they were committed to the glory of Christ. And in Philemon verses 3 to 7, uh, we, we see five strategic commitments that enable you to live your life uh, with, for the glory of Christ, to orient your life for the glory of Christ. And I just want to read the, the letter of Philemon to you again before we go any further in the message. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brethren. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that, without, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me, owe to me even your own life as well. Yes, brother, let the benefit from you in the Lord. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. And so we're looking particularly in this in this series of messages, verses 3 to, to 7. And we began that message last week just to review the, the, the major points there. The strategic commitments that we looked at from verse 3 is to live your life full of grace and peace. Live your life full of grace and peace. And then from verse 4, to live your life so that you multiply thanksgiving to God, that you're, you yourself are giving thanksgiving to God, but also being the occasion for others to thank God for His work in your life and what you're doing, what He's doing through, through you. And then thirdly, live your life so that you're widely known for your faith in Jesus Christ and for your love for the saints. Those two prongs are, are very important. And in fact, the, the last one, your love for the saints takes takes a, really an emphasis or becomes an emphasis in this letter as we'll see even the remaining points that we look at today.
So from verses 6 and 7, we're going to see the other two or the two remaining strategic life commitments that help you to orient your life for Christ. And that is in verse uh, 6, to live your life so that the fellowship of your faith becomes effective for Christ's sake. And verse uh, 7, to live your life so that the hearts of the saints are refreshed through you. We'll dig into both of these and uh, and uh, to understand what um, Paul wants us to understand. So firstly, to, to live your life so that the, your fellowship of faith or the fellowship of your faith becomes effective for Christ's sake. Now, verse 6, though it, it, it's not long and it's fairly uh, clear as far as the overall gist, verse 6 is considered as one of the most obscure verses uh, in the Pauline corpses. There's probably only one other verse that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, I think it's 16, that is uh, perhaps more obscure. It's not difficult to understand, like some other text uh, where Paul might speak of the baptism for the dead. That's theologically difficult to understand and to work through that. This text doesn't have that kind of difficulty. It's just difficult grammatically, because in part because of, of how Paul uh, just runs everything together, and, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's just the way God intended it. Um, the, the difficulty in understanding Paul's thought is manifested through the various English translations. So if you, again, if you, I mentioned last week, if you picked up various English translations, you would, you would see the various differences, uh, and just how drastically different, not minorly, but, but fairly significantly. Uh, some versions like the English Standard Version, the New King James Version, make it sound like Paul is praying to, for, for Philemon to be a faithful evangelist with, with the phrase, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. But other versions like the NASB 95, the New American Standard Bible, the 95, or the Legacy Standard Bible, uh, give a more general sense. It just simply says, I pray that your fellowship of your faith may become effective. But what is exactly does that mean? Well, I'll do my best to explain what I think the Holy Spirit intends for us to get from this passage um, as we walk through it. And um, it is a passage, again, that's complicated grammatically, but the overall gist of it is is clear. Now, verse 6 begins with um, an italicized phrase, or at least in the New American Standard Bible, and the Legacy Standard Bible. Your your Bible may also have that. Notice that there's a phrase, and I pray, at the, at the first part of the that verse that is italicized. Now, the, the, the Bibles that use italicized print like that are using it in a different way than we use it. So if we use italicized print, usually it's for emphasis. It's to draw emphasis to a particular word so that word stands out above all the others. That's not how your Bible is using italicized text. Italicized text indicates that the translators have added the words to smooth the translation, but those words do not exist in the Greek. So that's what it's telling you. And that's why it's helpful, even if you use the, you know, your Bible as the New King James Version, or it's another version that that's the one you like to read. Have a Legacy Standard Bible or a New American Standard Bible, the 95 one, not the, not the newer one. But the 95 one, have that on hand so that you can read through passages or studying it to, to help you see passages like that. It's a very useful tool. So the, the translators have added the word, and I pray, to help us connect what is in verse 6 with the, uh, with the emphasis or Paul's mention of praying 
that he, that he had earlier. He says in verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. So the, the idea is the translators believe verse 6 flows from Paul's, Paul's prayer that it becomes the content of his prayers. Um, Paul, uh, Paul moved fluidly between giving thanks for Philemon to praying for Philemon and back to thanks. And I think he had a regular habit of doing this, just not for Philemon, but for, for all that he prayed for. And, and in some ways, our Western minds get frustrated by this because Paul is not linear in thought right here. He, he kind of like makes long run on sentences. Good examples of that. We won't turn to them now, but good examples of that are, are found in Ephesians 1 uh, or Colossians 1. There's just a lot there. And, and it's it, again, it's frustrating to our Western mind um, because he's not linear. But that's okay. We need to grow, and the Western way of thinking isn't the better way of thinking. It's just a different way of thinking. Right? So we need to, to learn what Paul's saying. And this, the, he just moves back and forth between thanksgiving and intercession. So I think it's, it's uh, right to, to see that verse 6 is connected with the content of the prayer. Paul is moving inter, in, into intercession without really specifying that he is praying. But this, this forms the content of his prayer. What does Paul pray for for Philemon and we see that it, the word that it is really the first that first word flowing in the Greek that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake now we want to we want to unpack that uh, a bit what does fellowship or particularly what does the fellowship of your faith mean well the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia it, it's a translation, um, it, or fellowship is a translation of a, of this Greek word that's very colorful, very expressive. The word can mean association, or community, or communion, or joint participation. No one English word can capture everything that is that, that is intended to, or, or packed into the Greek word koinonia, which is why we struggle to translate it and understand it. It has three broad categories of meaning. One, a participation, that is, uh, the, sh- the share which one has in anything. Secondly, fellowship, uh, the idea of common, uh, the idea of common contact and intimacy with others. Now, we, we use the word fellowship. I do want to caution. It's not the same way that we use the word fellowship. When we talk about fellowship, we have fellowship luncheons, like we will today, that that emphasizes more of the of the communication part, just talking to one another, spending time to what, with one another. Legitimate use of the word fellowship, but koinonia fellowship is much deeper than that. It, it drives to the to the core of who we are as Christians, our connectedness as Christians, and the activities that result from that. And so it's a very rich term. And then the third general meaning is a gift given. This word. Koinonia is actually used in a way where, in, by Paul to speak of gifts of fellowship that, that believers with the means would give to poor believers like in Jerusalem. So it's the, same, it's the same word that's used there. But the main idea of koinonia is fellowship, that rich fellowship. Again, not just the verbal interaction, not just spending time together, but the deep-rooted community sharing together, that, that idea of fellowship going very deep. Now, the idea of fellowship certainly would include speaking and spending time, to, speaking with one another, spending time with one another, but it really points to the communion that we have with Jesus Christ through the Spirit, through the new birth, 
and also that communion that we have with one another through Christ. Um, in the context of Philemon 6, it seems best to understand that Paul is using the word koinonia or fellowship with a with an ab, a active subjective experience. So if it was more of the objective experience, that is our objective fellowship is what we have in Christ. Right? So what we have in Christ we, we know we're united with Christ because of what the scriptures say. And because if you've experienced the transformation of God, then you, you know that you are one in Christ. You've been born again and saved by Christ. That's the objective union with Christ. And then there is the active, uh, subjective part of that communion, which flows in our interactions with one another. And that really seems to be what Paul is pointing at. Um, uh, Part of the reason that, that the, I, I landed on this view is because the, the letter speaks about love of the saints. We, we have talked about it, read it. You heard it as we read through it. So I like to read the whole letter, especially one that's this short. There's the love of the, of the saints. There's the refreshing of the hearts of the saints. This, this letter talks a lot about practical application, practical love, practical outworking of the fellowship that Philemon had with Paul and with Onesimus, although Onesimus is not named in this in this introduction. So um, Paul uh, speaks about the the practical part or the say the this this subjective experiential part of the fellowship because he's going to ask he's going to ask Philemon to to forgive Onesimus. And that forgiveness is an outflowing of the genuine fellowship that Philemon has, not only with Christ, but also with Onesimus as a brother. Now, now what does he mean by fellowship of your faith? Faith, The fellowship of your faith. It's not just fellowship, it's fellowship of your faith. Paul mentions the fellowship of your faith. And notice he doesn't say the fellowship of the faith. That would indicate he's pointing more to the objective doctrinal standard. But he's saying the fellowship of your faith. And, and the your there is a singular reference to Philemon. So he's talking to Philemon. This is the fellowship of your faith. This is what he's, he's, he's written this. So he's talking to Philemon, but he's expressing how he prayed for Philemon. Some, some translations use the word, uh, koinonia or use the word sharing to translate the, the, the word koinonia. So as we think about the fellowship of your faith, they would translate this as the sharing of your faith. Now, that's unfortunate because we talk about in our everyday language, so many Christians, we talk about sharing your faith. Hey, I got to share faith, share my faith with with uh, my brother or my sister or my mom or my son. And and so we, we think about, we kind of understand the text, we import that meaning back onto the text, thinking that what Philemon is, or what Paul is praying for Philemon is that he would just be a, a better evangelist, or that he would he would proclaim Christ. And, and and the problem with that is that the word sharing is that word koinonia. It's it's going to going back to fellowship again. It, it's it's not relaying about evangelism and proclaiming Christ. Paul may have prayed that for Philemon, but that's not what he's talking about here. So we talk about sharing your faith. You could go with that translation, but understand he's not talking about evangelism. There is that sharing of your faith that becomes very practical in the outworking of love. Remember, the context here is, 
is that of love, agape love, sacrificial love, love that, that serves, love that gives, loves that makes sacrifices for others. So it's that kind of sharing if, if you uh, want to go with that translation of sharing. It, but tra- fellowship helps us, the word fellowship helps us understand that, it's, that Paul is not talking about evangelism here. It, the idea of sharing your faith um, in an evangelistic way is, is not in the context of Philemon at all. It would be out of context. Commentator Seth Horn, Ehorn says, uh, explains that Paul's use of koinonia is best understood as an intra-Christian activity. Evangelism, although undertaken by Christians from the community, is not an in-community activity. That's why we call it outreach. Right? It's not in-reach. In-reach is what we're doing. Encourage one another. That's, that's within the body, within the fellowship. Evangelism is outreach. It goes outside that fellowship, outside that community we share with other believers to tell others about Christ. And we need to do both. Um, this text is talking about that, that the kind of the, the practical outworking of the fellowship of Philemon um, in, in practical ways. Now notice that his prayer continues. He says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith, so that's that's kind of the object of his prayers. He says, may become effective, may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Why does why does Paul pray for Philemon's fellowship may become effective? Or maybe back up and say, what does effective mean? The word effective can also be translated as active and is used in two other places in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says, For a wide and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He's indicating to the Corinthians that, that a door has been opened, an effective door, an active door, one that, that allows him to go in and minister, to preach Christ. And he says, even though there's many adversaries, the door has been opened, and it's an active door. It's effective. There's opportunities to proclaim Christ, and there's opportunities to encourage the saints. Then in, in Hebrews 4.12, uh, there the author of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For the word of God is living and active. Same word, or you say effective. It's, it's accomplishing its work. Right? It's not passive. It is active. As one commentator explains, the word, uh, the word effective is also used in contemporary texts, that is, to, in texts we find that were similar, written about the same time as the Bible, that refer to a mill in working order. So when you see the word effective here, think about a mill in, in working order. It is effective. It is, it is doing what a mill is supposed to do. And, and in the sense of the word, he says, it seems to indicate usefulness effectiveness in an active sense. It's accomplishing the, the very thing that God wants it to accomplish. Now, why would, why would Philemon's fellowship of faith need to become effective? Well, Paul's not saying that it's currently ineffective. We can see that from the text. Right? Paul's already talked about the fact that Philemon is known for his faith in Christ and he's known for his love for the saints. And, he, and we're going to see in verse 7 that he refreshed the heart of the saints. So he's not, he's not saying that Philemon's faith is ineffective. He's prayed for it to become ever more effective. And, and really, th- this is all aimed at the request that he's going to make of Philemon to forgive Onesimus. He doesn't mention Onesimus, but this is where that is aimed. Where is Paul's fellowship 
going to the effectiveness of Paul's fellowship going to be tested. It's going to be tested when Paul asks him to receive Onesimus as he would a beloved brother. That's where it's going to get tested. That's what Paul is praying for in a general way, that his fellowship of Philemon's faith would be effective. And he, he says, uh, he continues there, effective how? How does the fellowship of Philemon's faith become effective? It's that last phrase, through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Now here Paul simply is praying for Philemon's knowledge and understanding to grow so that that will inform his actions. The word for knowledge that Paul uses here is a full knowledge. Uh, the Legacy Standard Bible, in fact, adds that in, a full knowledge. Um, but keep in mind, this is not exhaustive knowledge, but it's a full knowledge. Right? This is a rich knowledge gained either through empirical means or through reflective undertakings. It's not just the knowledge of like reading a book. It's the knowledge of reading the book and doing it. It comes together. And it really, this idea, uh, knowledge, um, uh, that right actions, in case this, this effective, the, the, the fellowship of, of his faith would be effective through knowledge, reinforces what we learned in the book of Titus, that right living comes from right thinking. You know, if, you, if you're going to live for Christ and you want to do so for his glory and honor, you must feed yourself sound doctrine. Sound living comes from sound doctrine. John MacArthur explains this kind of knowledge. He says, this kind of knowledge comes through personal acquaintance with the truth. Philemon could read of forgiveness or hear a sermon about it, but until he forgave, he could have no experiential knowledge of it. By forgiving Onesimus, Philemon would experience that good thing in him known as forgiveness. By walking in obedience to God's will, believers experience the good things God has placed within them. So it's one thing to understand forgiveness in, from, uh, from just reading it from the Bible or hearing it from a sermon. But when you actually have to forgive someone who has deeply hurt you, that's when you grow in your, in your understanding of what forgiveness is. And he goes on to say the, the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. And it seems that Paul is intentionally vague or general here, thus pointing to all that God has done in Philemon and by application in our lives. That the working knowledge that Philemon has of all that God has done, all that God has given to Philemon and done in Philemon is, is to motivate, is to help motivate Philemon to action in, in helping make the fellowship of his faith effective. Now, there's a, it's really a, a reciprocal relationship between our understanding and our actions. In this case, our knowledge of forgiveness and the effective um, working out of that, the fellowship of faith that we have that is actually forgiving. Uh, commentator John Kitchen uh, suggests that through the full knowledge, that phrase would be better understood as describing the sphere in which, in which Philemon's active participation with other believers brought about through his personal trust in Jesus is to become effective. In this way, the relationship between knowledge and fellowship could be understood as a reciprocating one. It is only as we begin to see every good thing that is in, that is ours in Christ that we are able to live in fellowship with one another. But on the other hand, as we do indeed live effectually in fellowship with Christ and His people, 
we learn at even deeper levels every good thing that is ours in Christ. So the, the, the scriptures inform our, they give us the head knowledge, but then as we begin to apply that, we gain the practical knowledge and, and a deeper understanding, for example, of what it took for God to forgive us. You know, the difficulty of forgiving someone who's deeply hurt you. That helps you understand the immensity and the grandness of God's gift of forgiveness to you. And, and Paul prays at the end. He says uh, there at the end of verse 6, he says, which is in you for Christ's sake. So the New, New American Standard Bible translation expresses the, the ultimate goal of Paul's prayer, the, uh, the ultimate goal that uh, Philemon's, uh, Philemon's faith being effective, and that is for Christ's sake, for the sake of Christ, that is for, for Christ's glory. Um, the Greek actually just says, you could say in a generic way, says in Christ. And, and so left in this general sense, this general understanding would mean that all that Philemon does within and for the fellowship of the saints is to be done in the realm of Christ, that is, in his strength and for his glory. We talk about in Christ, that's in his realm, um, done within his strength and for his glory. It's sort of like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Right? So that, that is all-encompassing. So all that Philemon would do for the fellowship uh, and it springs forth from the fellowship of his faith would be done uh, for the sake of Christ, for Christ's glory. Now as we did with some of these other um, principles that, that, uh, that, that we applied to our lives or that we looked at, we want to apply it to our lives. So just think about the Paul prayed for Philemon's faith to be, to be effective the fellowship of his faith to be effective. Are you, first of all, in the fellowship? So you can never have fellowship that a fellowship of faith that is effective if you're not in the fellowship. How do you know if you're in the fellowship? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you forgiven have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? If you have truly done that uh, and experienced being born again, then the answer is yes, you're in the fellowship. And if you don't know whether you're in the fellowship, um, ultimately with God through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be by calling out to him. It, the Lord promises to save all those who call upon him, that, that no one will be cast out who genuinely calls upon the name of the Lord. He does that. He brings you. He brings all of us by faith in Jesus Christ into that fellowship. But assuming that I'm speaking to people who are in the fellowship now, is the fellowship of your faith effective? Right? What is it, what, again, what does that mean? That's the practical outworking of your faith. Is your faith in Christ, is that, is that being manifested? Is that, is that evident in your life? For example, just, just looking at the book of Philemon. Philemon's, the fellowship of Philemon's faith would need to be effective to forgive Onesimus. It's going to be tested, right? But it, but there's good evidence to say that, that he that he answered that, that Philemon responded well. But but that's the kind of effectiveness, that, that the fellowship of your faith being effective, that outworking of your faith. How do you react when somebody offends you? How do you how do you react when uh, somebody is unkind to you? How do you act when they've hurt you and they come back to ask for forgiveness? I mean 
these are the, 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 the inner workings, the, the, the fellowship of your faith being effective. And, and as we'll see later in, from verse uh, 7, that there is a, a refreshing of the saints that we can have, uh, that we can actually do and contribute to, to one another. So is the fellowship of your faith active like that? Right, right here within your local church. That's, that's the first area of application is with other believers in your local church. Right? Sometimes do, sometimes do a little study and look up all the one another commands of scripture. Right? There's a whole series of them, a long list of them. So that you to get very practical, just look through the long list of, of the one another commands. That's like love one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another. Right? Don't grumble against one another. Look at the positive and the negative commands. Go through all scripture and look at those. Is, are you practicing those? And are you growing it? None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. But are you growing in these things? That's where the fellowship of your faith becomes very active, very practical. Right? You show your faith in Christ, your union with Christ, and your union with, with other believers by how you interact with them. So just ask yourself those those questions and ask ask God to help you. If if you see your shortcomings in these areas, confess them to the Lord. He's promised, uh, because he is faithful and true, he's promised to forgive your sins. And and he's promised to help you, to, to walk with you, to strengthen you. That's what he wants. That the fellowship of your faith would be effective, active, accomplishing the very thing that he wants it to accomplish. So to summarize, the fourth strategic life commitment that helps you live a Christ-oriented life uh, is is to live your life so that the fellowship of your faith is effective. That's a strategic and intentional commitment. Now let's look at the fifth strategic life commitment, and that's from verse 7. That is to live your life so that the hearts of the saints are refreshed through you. Live your life so that the hearts of the saints are refreshed through you. Now, there's um, verse 7 kind of begins a, a new a new verse, or a new sentence, I should say, but it is connected with with what we've seen in verses 4, 5, and 6 and, and flowing into verse 8. It's it's the hinge verse. It forms a transition. Paul is going to move from talking about his prayer and thanksgiving, what he's praying for, to actually the body of the letter and asking Philemon to, to receive Onesimus. And particularly, Paul wants to draw out what Philemon is doing well. That is Philemon's love, which will be called upon to honor the request that Paul is going to make of Philemon. Now, if we see verse 7, he says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brethren. Paul had much joy and comfort in Philemon's love. The joy is, is the Greek word charis, which describes gladness or great happiness. Not, not something superficial. You could even use it to say, to, to translate it as with the word rejoicing. And this is the same kind of joy that caused Jesus to go to the cross. This is why we know it's not just a superficial joy. Um, in, in the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, after talking about exhorting his readers to run the race that is set before us, he says in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about that. The joy set, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
That, that's a profound thought. You can rejoice in Christ even when doing something very difficult, like forgiving someone who's, he, who's hurt you uh, deeply. This is the same kind of joy that our Father in heaven and the angels have over sinners who repent and believe in Jesus. Luke fifteen seven says, Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So that's the kind of that's the kind of joy, rejoicing that Paul had when he thought about Philemon. And he, he not only says joy, but he says comfort. And the word comfort can be in translate can be translated also as encouragement. It is the it is the Greek word paraklesis. And I mentioned that because you may be familiar with the word paraclete, which is very close to it. The word paraclete is used to describe both Jesus and the Holy Spirit as a comforter or as a helper. Helper with a capital H. Uh, he is a divine helper. And it is that, it is that sense where he talks about comfort. Um, that, that Paul is encouraged. Paul is given joy. And, and notice the measure, Paul says. He, says. he says there in verse 7, I have come to have what? Just joy and comfort? Much joy and comfort. Much joy and comfort. So when Paul thought of Philemon, he was comforted. He rejoiced. In, in great ways. And notice the reason for this. He says in verse 7, in your love. In your love. And this is again agape love. This is sacrificial love. Philemon's love, right? there was an emotion, otherwise Paul wouldn't be able to tell the emotion. This Philemon's love flowed out into practical actions that got reported back to Paul. And Paul heard these things. He was comforted and he rejoiced. He experienced much joy and encouragement because of the report that he had heard about Philemon. Now, now notice here, he goes on, he says in verse 7, he says, For I have come to much joy and comfort in your love, because, this gives us a reason for that joy and comfort, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now the word heart here is not the, the normal Greek word for heart. It's, it's the Greek word for bowels. But it's rightly translated here as heart, because in English we talk about love, genuine love flowing from the bottom of your heart. You, you know, you want to express, you really love somebody, you say, oh, I, I love you from the bottom of my heart, right? But in, in the Greek, New Testament way of thinking, they would not say that. They would say, I love you from my bowels, from my entrails, because they thought that the emotions flowed from the inside. They didn't flow from, from the beating heart in your chest. It flowed from your gut, right? So uh, that's, that's the expression, but it's rightly translated as, as heart here. Because that's the expression. He's saying, he's saying, you have refreshed them. You've refreshed, not, not just them in a, some superficial way, but you've refreshed them in a deep, meaningful way. You, you've impacted their, their emotions. The seed of emotions are markedly different because of what Philemon did for the brethren. And, and Paul doesn't explain what Philemon did, but, but whatever he did, it greatly encouraged the saints, and it encouraged their hearts. And he, and he says, he say the hearts of the saints. He doesn't use the word encourage, other than that's the, a general idea. He says, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. Refreshed means to stop or rest. In the sense of how soldiers would, would rest when they've been marching, they're weary from resting, and they, they stop and they, they rest. They take in some food and water and rest their legs. It, it's that kind of rest. Jesus uses this word rest multiple times in, in the New Testament. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus invites 
those who are listening to his words. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. So that, that helps you understand. Rest is the opposite of being weary and heavy laden. You're weary and heavy laden. And, and through the hearts, through Philemon's work, the hearts of the saints had been given rest. So they were no longer weary and heavy laden. And it doesn't mean the circumstances were changed, but he came alongside them in some practical way to really lift their spirits. In Mark 6.31, Jesus says, uh, said to his disciples, he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and then did not have a time to eat. So the disciples were so busy in ministry with Jesus that they were they were really, he, he knew that they were getting tired and, and weary and they just needed to come away from the crowds, stop ministering and just have a season of rest. So Jesus took them away from the crowds in order to refresh them and give them rest. Uh, again, we see... Um, uh, how this word rest brings uh, an idea of of uh, refreshment to our body and soul. In Mark 40, 14, 41, talking about the times where Jesus Jesus uh, went away to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, it, and in Mark four forty one it says, He came the third time back to his disciples. He said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Okay? So the idea of rest, I, I mentioned that, just the idea of rest is what happens when you're sleeping. If you don't sleep well, you don't rest well. You're not refreshed. But but the idea of of resting is refreshment. Uh, Paul talks about this um, uh, through how how the saints were the hearts of the saints were refreshed through Philemon, and he and he says there through you that Philemon refreshed the hearts of the saints, like people who ministered to Paul refreshed him. Paul uses this term in First Corinthians chapter sixteen verses seventeen and eighteen. He says, "I rejoice." over the coming of Stephanophis and Fortinitus and Archaeus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. So these three men were sent, no doubt, by their, their home church or churches with some kind of gift for Paul that brought a, a refreshment to his spirit. Um, and Paul also talks about how Titus's spirit was refreshed by the Corinthians' obedience. So bringing refreshment to another person's soul doesn't always mean some kind of material gift. In 2 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16, we, uh, Paul talks about how Titus's spirit was refreshed by the obedience of the Corinthians. We won't turn to that, but you can, you can look that up. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. So just think about application here for a moment. Are you intentionally seeking to refresh the hearts of the saints? Philemon had proven himself to be a man of faith who deeply loved Jesus Christ and therefore deeply loved the saints. I mentioned that last week, but I'll repeat it. There's a connection. If you say you love Christ, but don't love the saints, the scriptures call you a liar. Not me, the scriptures. So you cannot love God who you cannot see if you cannot love your brother or sister in Christ who you can see. There's a, there's a connection there, unbreakable connection. Doesn't mean it's a perfect connection because we're all, we fail. We need to grow in these things. But ask yourself, again, go back to the fact that love is not an emotion. Agape love is an action. That's sacrificial love, right? How is that, how is your love for the brethren being manifested? I see ways, I'm just encouraging you in the church 
that we need to grow, excel still more in this for the glory of Christ. Those who have been forgiven much love much. This tells us something about Philemon, doesn't it? If if Philemon loved the saints this much, well, I know that Philemon well understood he was forgiven much. Right? Philemon was not a proud man. He was not a man that was all about Philemon's kingdom. He was about the kingdom of Christ. He was living a Christ-oriented life. Just ask yourself, how is your love manifested? And, and what kind of modifier would the Apostle Paul use if he saw your life and examined your life? How would he describe your love? Do you love much? Or do you love merely? What are you doing on a regular base, basis to refresh the hearts of the saints? Well, just evaluate your life through the lens of Scripture. Are you living a life full of God's grace and peace? Are you living your life so that you multiply thanksgiving to God? Are you living your life so that you're widely known for your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for the saints? Are you living your life so that the fellowship of your faith becomes effective for Christ's sake? Are you living your life so that the hearts of the saints are refreshed through you? How did Philemon respond to Paul's request to receive Onesimus, not just forgive him, but receive him as a brother, as a beloved brother, to receive him even as he would receive would have received Paul? Well, I'm sure it was not easy, but I have no doubt that Philemon responded as someone would who was living his life for Christ's sake. Because Philemon was living a Christ-oriented life, we have no doubt that he answered this request affirmatively. That same overriding goal of seeking first the kingdom of God flowed through Corey Tenboom's spiritual veins. Did she ever forgive her cruel guard who asked her for forgiveness? Listen to her explain her response when he asked her with an outstretched hand again, Will you forgive me? And I quote her here. I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, had to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive me, if you do not forgive, uh, if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can still lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The, the current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. 
the former guard, and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Just think about that. She didn't simply say, I forgive you. She said, I forgive you what? Brother. The only way she could do that is because of her fellowship with Christ and her fellowship with other believers. That's the power of God's word, working through God's people and manifesting itself in visible action of fellowship. Let us pray. Our Lord, as we contemplate your great forgiveness of us, just thank you. How could we how could we do anything but thank you? You have forgiven us so much. Your your forgiveness is so abundant. Sometimes we take your forgiveness for granted. But it wasn't cheap forgiveness. It wasn't easy forgiveness. It cost you immensely. You died and suffered in our place to offer us forgiveness. Oh God, thank you. We praise you. And we just ask you help us to be ambassadors of the God who forgives. And that we would live that out in our lives within, first of all, within our own community as a church, within our own local fellowship. Just pray that you would make the fellowship of our faith effective through the outworking of doing difficult things like this within the body of Christ. Forgiving each other. Consider the interest of of others is more important than our own. All these things. We would do this for Christ's sake, for the glory of Christ and in the strength of Christ. And Lord, just ask that you would just cause us to be to be followers of Christ who are intent on refreshing the hearts of the saints. That that through actions, not drawing attention to ourselves, but but for the sake of Christ, seeking to refresh the hearts of the saints. Oh Lord, just do your work in Medina Bible Church, in our own our own lives, for your glory, within our congregation, even well beyond our borders. Lord God, just do your work that we would be faithful ambassadors for Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.